0: Hi, this is the Organizational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organizational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organizational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Okay, welcome back. And today we're talking to Dennis Torrish, who works at the University of Sussex, and he's produced a very interesting paper around hubris, entitled Towards an Organisational Theory of Hubris, Symptoms, Behaviors, and Social Fears Within Finance and Banking. So welcome, Dennis, to The Review. I was just wondering if you can start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, research history, and interests.
1: Well, I originally come from Northern Ireland, which helps to explain my interest in hubris and in dysfunctional leadership in general because historically we've had a lot of it in that part of the world. Currently I'm a professor of leadership and organization studies at the University of Sussex Business School. I've also had a long-standing research interest in dysfunctional organizations that we might describe as cults. Such as the Scientologists, the Moonies, and various other such organizations, where we also see many examples of narcissism and hubris in existence. So all of that fueled my interest in this particular topic.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Um, fantastic. So, and and you recently published the paper um, towards organizational theory of hubris. Um, do you just want to give an an overview of what led to this particular piece of research, kind of why did you do it?
1: Well, my particular focus in this paper is on the banking and finance sector, and it draws on 27 interviews that I conducted (laughs) with people who worked at different levels within those sectors, including some senior managers and several former CEOs and the like. So the starting point for this for me was the realization that dysfunctional management and leadership have played a big part in the 2008 financial crisis. But I couldn't help notice that most management research journals have said very little about the uh, events of that time. And uh, to this day, I think that the major academy of management uh, journals still haven't published anything that tries to look at this from a management perspective. It seemed to me that it would be sensible to do so and see if we could identify anything in terms of (coughs) dysfunctional leadership behaviours that might just have had something to do Was that chronic collapse the effects of which we are still
0: living with? Yes, yes, definitely. And um, yeah, I've come across more than that in my own career. Um, So, can you just explain a little bit about what hubris is, uh, how it's defined, and and something of the, the problems faced whilst researching? This, the concept of hubris?
1: Well, one of the problems with it is that the term is now used fairly indiscriminately to describe any kind of bad leader that we encounter. So it has oftentimes been used just as a, an indiscriminate term of abuse for perceived failure. Looking at it more precisely, I think hubris is... First of all, to some extent, grotesque over self-confidence on the part of a designated uh, leader. We need a certain amount of confidence. We sometimes even need some overconfidence, but I'm talking here about a highly exaggerated uh, version of it, um, combined with the feeling of, in a way, personal indispensability, um, a-, a feeling that the world revolves around this particular individual, that they don't need much, in the way of critical feedback from other individuals because the quality of their own decisions is so high. So that also leads to a feeling of being indispensable on their part for the future of the organisation or if there are politicians suffering from hubris, indispensable for the future salvation of the country that they are in charge of. Those are some of its main distinguishing characteristics, I
0: think. Yes, and, and this idea that that they have that their their answers and their decisions are the right ones and everybody else just doesn't understand
1: yes really so therefore hubristic leaders tend to go a lot by instinct gut instinct if you like evidence doesn't matter so much because by definition they are some kind of a genius who can intuit the correct way forward so the more a person becomes a hubristic leader the more they discard evidence that disconfirms the ideas they have about what uh, should be done. Now, in some circumstances, people like that maybe can make a correct decision. It's also the case that with no critical feedback into the decision-making process, they become more likely to make very bad decisions. So we know, for example, from research that um, leaders who, business leaders that is, who suffer from hubris, they're inclined to think to do things like exaggerate the benefits that will be obtained through things like conducting mergers and acquisitions of different organizations. They minimize the possibility of a particular business venture failing. They uh, turn a blind eye to defects and deficiencies in whatever the product is that they are serving, uh, thereby refusing to make uh, improvements in it when the time still remains for for that to be done. One of the best examples in banking and finance, of course, is uh, Sir Fred Goodwin, who ran the Royal Bank of Scotland and turned it into the biggest bankruptcy in UK corporate history. So convinced was Goodwin and his colleagues of their genius that they engaged in the biggest bank acquisition in history when they acquired a Dutch-owned bank, ABN AMRO, and so confident were that they only conducted what they called due diligence light. In other words, they didn't really do it at all. And I often suggest that this is a bit like you or I deciding to marry somebody based on their dating profile, an internet dating website rather than actually taking the trouble to get to know them. But that would be an example of the grotesque overconfidence that we see in the business world. And since we're talking just after last night's first presidential debate in America when Biden and Trump clashed, it's absolutely impossible to avoid noting that people like Donald Trump suffer from precisely what we're talking about in a very aggravated form.
0: Yes, and there's also a huge slice as part of the hubris of confirmation bias where they're very selective in what they're choosing as being a success um, and that they actually believe that.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. And a hubristic leader will uh, take so many, they'll they'll be so convinced of their genius that they will discourage anybody really telling them the truth and they will criticise anybody attempting to do so. So over a period of time, they become like a rock star with a psychophantic entourage. They begin to believe their own publicity, their own PR, their own propaganda. They self-persuade themselves that they are this person of uh, unapproachable, unimpeachable genius. Of course, the truth very often is that they aren't. They simply bludgeon and intimidate people around them and silence. That's never a good formula for success in business, politics, or for that matter in life.
0: Yeah, and also because they're a leader, they're, they're able to choose who's going to be around them. And they're able to get rid of the people who are critical thinkers, um, people who are using evidence and, and people who may be actually giving them good feedback. They're gonna get rid of those kinds of people because it doesn't fit into their schema.
1: Yeah, precisely. And of course, people around them very quickly come to understand this. So they engage in the practice of what we call ingratiation, or if you like, flattery, where they exaggerate how much they agree with the person who is in the leadership role. They understate the extent to which they disagree with them. And this cacophony of voices always agreeing with the leader, of course, convinces the leader even more that what they set out to do in the first place is absolutely correct. So what looks like madness to an outsider comes to the leader to look like a view of normality. And for example, when I was doing my research in banking and finance, many of the interviewees told me horror stories about big impending business decisions the banks had made, for example, to acquire another bank, that everybody in the organisation knew would be a disaster But anybody who tried to suggest that to the leader was dismissed, belittled, ridiculed, and eventually those voices fell silent, um, thereby ensuring that bad business decisions became, in many cases, a matter of routine.
0: Yes. And again, going back to the example of Donald Trump, I remember that there was an excruciating um, television kind of interview where they had all of his lieutenants around the table all praising him. Mm -hmm. and um, I don't know whether you remember that. Um,
1: I do remember that and of course Trump often insists that for example he knows more about the COVID crisis than the doctors who are advising him. He knows more about military strategy than the top generals who are uh, experts in military policy and have been steeped in it for many decades. Uh, After all that is not forget that he called himself a very stable genius and yes. only a person who is not a genius would ever imagine that they are a very stable genius I would argue. Now Trump is obviously an extreme example but I do think that in the world of business as well we have many many examples of people who fall into those kinds of behaviours.
0: Yes I think we do in all, and in all sorts of types of organisations and not just within the banking sector um, and 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 I, I think it comes out in, in a number of different ways. One of the things that I picked up in your study that, that did surprise me, that I, largely because I hadn't actually thought about it, was that um, you, you were also able to discern some of the positive effects of hubris, um, which I wasn't expecting. Can you just talk us through that a little bit?
1: Well, it, it depends partly on how we define hubris. If we're simply thinking about it in terms of overconfidence, then there are clearly circumstances in which, tempered by some kind of realism, but nevertheless, there, with some form of, of, of confidence in the ultimate goal is desirable or possible. I often think that nobody wins a Wimbledon tournament by going into the final thinking to themselves, well, this isn't really my day today, and the other guy's looking too good, and I think I'll face defeat. Um, mm. And if we think back to the role that people like Winston Churchill played in the first. In the Second World War, where he was adamant that on the one hand we faced very severe challenges, but on the other, he was absolutely confident of uh, victory, even whenever it didn't look like it, uh, uh, like it might be possible. So um, there are circumstances under which that kind of over, overconfident attitude pays evidence and is required. But I think the problem is that when it becomes an indiscriminate reflex of optimism under all conditions, and in spite of all evidence to the contrary, and in spite of all feedback to the contrary, and in spite of multiple setbacks, then we have a problem. So, for example, one of the things that led to Hitler's downfall in the war was that he wouldn't countenance a retreat on the part of his troops under any circumstances let alone any of them ever uh, surrendering. That was a form of hubris uh, in a way because the feedback and the evidence that the existing strategy wasn't working were simply, uh, simply discarded. So it's a very cautious acknowledgement that there might occasionally be some positives uh, uh, to this. The problem is when it becomes uh, overwhelming when the person doing it gets carried away when the brutal facts of reality that all organizations eventually have to confront when, uh, when that is denied. So another example of that, to be honest, might be the Brexit saga that we're undergoing at the moment where there is very little acknowledgement from Boris Johnson his advice is that there might be some problems come January and where Johnson has even uh, asserted in the face of all the evidence, all the evidence, that even a no deal outcome in January would be, quotes, a good outcome. Well, mm. it won't be a good outcome. No expert believes that it will be a good outcome. And that's an example of over-optimism, over-confidence being used as a screen for denying the reality of what's in front of us and an actual fact denying the evidence that bad news might be on the horizon
0: yes in, in fact this ties in very closely with another paper that was published this year around um the difference between uh optimists and pessimists and and who have the most uh, healthy outcomes and um like a lot of people assume that optimists have better healthy outcomes and in fact they don't particularly people who are over optimistic because of eventually they come face to face with reality um, and that has uh, from a psychological point of view and a a mental health point of view has an impact um which which is interesting so um uh, just to kind of move on a little bit um you found that there are five um behaviors associated with hubris in your study could you just talk us through these
1: yes well i um uh and interviewed these 27 people i asked and to identify what I call critical incidents or stories that in their experience demonstrated the existence of hubris. The first one that came across over and over again was a combination of overconfidence and over persistence. So we talked a minute ago about overconfidence maybe being sometimes necessary, but the other side of that that these stories demonstrated was over persistence and failed courses of action. Everybody could see that action A wasn't working, hadn't worked, never would work, but the hubristic leader um, refused to accept this and kept on proceeding with, uh, uh, with that. The second behaviour closely associated with this was uh, what I have described as the behaviour of recklessness. That because something theoretically might confer an advantage to the leader, for example, they might gain some sense of glory from successfully carrying out an acquisition, then they would pursue that line of action again in spite of all the evidence that it might not actually be working. And they would create an internal culture of fear where people would be reluctant to actually uh, 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 show that. The third behaviour was what I described as self-insulated, self-interested behaviours combined with an insulation from reality. Now, self-interested behavior is the accumulation of perks, privileges beyond all sense of uh, reason. I talked to one senior manager who described, for instance, how the CEO of his bank built a replica of a Starbucks coffee shop in the corner of his office uh, because he was a great fan of Starbucks coffee. Mm -hmm. And where, when he he was served the coffee, the cup with the logo on it had to be turned to him so that he could see the logo at all times. Um, insulation from reality. I talked to a female middle manager who gave this example of it. She met her then female CEO at the checkout of Marks & Spencer's uh, shop, said hello, oh, nice to see you, past the time of day, and the following day was reprimand, reprimanded by her line manager for daring to speak to the CEO in public. That kind of insulation from uh, reality comes across very strongly. Fourth behaviour was contempt for critical feedback. Anybody who suggested that something was wrong, you don't know what you're talking about, poo-poo, um, uh, get out of here. I'm not interested in hearing your views. And several people give examples of individuals in that position who actually lost their job. Um, The fifth behaviour that came across very strongly was abusive behaviour. Again, particularly directed at anybody who was making critical commentary, but a general feature of their behaviour. And uh, one particularly illustrative example was of a a senior manager who was actually a HR director in this bank who went to see another senior manager with a colleague. The colleague was there to tell the senior manager that something he wanted to do couldn't happen, that it wasn't possible. Well, this led to a mouthful of abuse from the manager in question, you effing little stupid C, we're going to do it my way, and so on and so forth. And eventually he actually picked up a baseball bat that was in his room and began to wield it in a threatening manner <laughs> what he didn't know was that the guy he was threatening had been a very well a very expert amateur boxer and he just stopped him and said look if you lay a finger on me i will put you in hospital whereupon he put down the bat and said oh i was just joking i didn't mean anything bad and all of that kind of stuff so they then went to see the, the then ceo of the bank to complain thinking this guy would be sacked in fact he eventually became the bank's ceo himself before a number of uh, events led to his removal. But that type of behavior is intolerable in anybody. And in particular, when you are a senior person yourself, it's even more intolerable. And I think it's characteristic of hubris, because it means that you assume you have more rights, privileges than anybody else. That behaviors that other people Uh, that would be intolerable and other people suddenly become okay with you as well. I mean, again, look at the the debate last night between Trump and Biden and the disgraceful way in which Donald Trump broke all the rules that he himself had agreed to, talked over his opponent, wouldn't let even the moderator finish a sentence. That's borderline abusive behaviour, if not outright abusive behaviour, and it would be an example of the type of thing that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, it's abuse of power, certainly, and it's 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 relying on the power that they have to be able to do those actions. And it's not uncommon in a lot of organisations, and certainly in no. the banking sector, I've seen it a fair bit.
1: But not only in the banking sector, I um, have been studying recently an American organisation called Theranos, I don't know if you've heard of it. It was a biotech company that went bankrupt in late 2018. Its founder and CEO was a young woman called Elizabeth Holmes, who is now facing trial for fraud in March next year. She had people like Henry Kissinger, George Shultz, another former Secretary of State, on her board. But it's absolutely clear that she suffered from enormous hubris and a culture was created inside that organization that one can only describe as a brute intimidation of, of all employees, where people were under intense surveillance uh, all the time. Anybody suspected of dissent was followed by private investigators hired by the organization concerned. Um, some of the best known lawyers in the country were hired by it, expressly to intimidate uh, individuals and uh, so on. So ultimately that led to the organization's collapse, of course, but it's indicative of a, a, a business environment that has become acceptable in some circles and one which I think we need to
0: struggle against. Yes, definitely. There, certainly listening to the stories that you're telling here, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, certainly from a psychological point of view, there's a big control issue where the individuals are trying to control everything around them and and the views of people around them to comply with the way that they see the world.
1: Absolutely. And that's associated with this spirit of grandiosity. I am the organization. Only I can uh, make America great again or save this organization or whatever. So going back to my example of Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, when they moved into a new headquarters at one point, she had her office redesigned to look like the Oval Office. And the glass windows on it were made of bulletproof glass. For example, so that grandiosity, that um, oh, nice. fantastic uh, belief in the genius of the leader was what flowed through her veins and the organisation was structured and organised to support that uh, completely erroneous belief.
0: Yes, because of the apparent success of these people. I've, I've seen this in, in other teams as well, where the, the leader... Or the team or the leader seems to be doing well, so they're allowed to continue with these kinds of behaviours. When actually, yes. they're, they're not only, you know, socially wrong; they're actually illegal in terms of, you know, a, a lot of, you know, the employment laws that we've got. You can't do that. Where well, you're not meant to be doing those kinds of things, but they get away with it.
1: Yeah. Well, success is a very uh, worrying and complex phenomenon. And I gave the example earlier of RBS under Fred Goodwin and the disastrous bank acquisition that it made and how they did what they called due diligence slight. But one of the reasons why they were so overconfident in themselves was that they had had a track record of previous mergers and acquisitions. And this made them uh, uh, think that they were masters of strategy and masters of acquisition who didn't need to do the hard work that other people uh, needed to do. Unfortunately, it led them completely to disaster.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's not uncommon with a series of successes for people to start to believe that those successes are, um, are their own doing as opposed no. to the possibility of random chance even.
1: Yes, and I mean... Uh, Uh, an intense good publicity fans the fuels of precisely this uh, problem. It's often said that you should sell your shares in an organisation when it has a new headquarters and a fountain at the front, and RBS moved into a building precisely like that, not a terribly long time before it went uh, bankrupt. Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos also had fantastically favorable publicity before the scam that she was basically involved in became known. For example, she was featured on the front page of Fortune magazine, profiled in glowing terms in many other numerous uh, outlets, was photographed and interviewed in the company of people like Bill Clinton, Um, uh, I think once with Barack Obama and other people of that kind as well, she was well connected and used her uh, connections to achieve a certain kind of effect. But that type of publicity turns the head of any one of us. And then Mm. when you add to that, that inside the organization, you're surrounded by flatterers, people telling you what a genius you are, it would take a very strong individual, male or female, to avoid drawing the conclusion that yes, these people are all correct.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I used to work in an organization, which will remain nameless, um, where the, the the head of the organization used to play golf. And it, whilst that person was in that organization, we had the biggest golf section that they'd ever been. But as soon as they left, <laughs> nobody <laughs> yes. was interested in golf again. It was like,
1: yeah, what? <laughs> I recall an interview with uh, George W. Bush's father actually he was american president where somebody once said to him what's the main thing you noticed now that you're no longer president and he said well i win a lot fewer rounds of golf <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes that's probably right <laughs> brilliant okay so you know bear in mind that the this is for kind of practitioners in organizations for, from your perspective you know, what's the biggest takeaway from this research that organisations can take away and use?
1: Well, I think there are several. I would say, first of all, we should be suspicious and sceptical of any view that says we can uh, ascribe an organization's success totally to the CEO. Mm. Success has many sources. The CEO might be one of them, but then we have things like luck that plays a certain part As well, We have a tendency to engage in what researchers have called the romance of leadership, whereby we assume that if something is going well or badly, for that matter, it must be the fault or the credit of the leader. I would encourage scepticism about that view. Time and time again, in my interviews with the banking people, I heard that boards were of very little use in counteracting these tendencies. Because the view had emerged that the role of the board was to support the CEO rather than to challenge them. And people on the boards were also frightened that if they openly criticise, if they criticise the CEO at board meetings, they would lose their position on boards. So I think we need to train and educate ourselves on what the role of boards actually is. It should be to scrutinise, to criticise, to interrogate and to dissent. If there is no dissent at that level... then we've got it, the makings of hubris. So I think that we need to create an environment in which leaders and other people um, do elementary things, like role model dissent, where we have devil's advocate rules at these particular forums, where boards become more diverse in their composition. Um, some researchers found, for example, that it's very helpful to have a significant number of board members here from outside that particular business because they're less likely to worry about asking idiotic questions and thereby opening up a process of of discussion. I think that's extremely important. We need to rethink what our role, what our image of the role of the follower is. The role of the follower isn't just to support, but it's also to criticise, also to criticise. And I cherish the story that I, I read a little while ago of, uh, uh uh, general Petraeus, I think who used to be one of Trump's advisors, told uh, this story about when he was a young officer. He went. He was sent to work with uh, uh, another general, and the general said, look, it, uh, it's my role to run this division. It's your job to ruthlessly criticise how I do it. I want a two-page report from you in my desk every fortnight criticising the decisions that I have made. And Petraeus said, what are you talking about? I can't do that. You're, you're," He said, nope, that's your job. That's what you have to do. So this young officer was forced to criticise him every couple of weeks and, of course, in doing so, learn about what it meant to be a leader and what the difficulties were of trying to reach uh, 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 trying to reach decisions. And I had a very touching letter, actually, from that general's daughter after I wrote about this somewhere who said that he had died quite recently but that this was absolutely the style that he had and the way that he encouraged the people around him uh, to uh, develop. We need to think about leadership as developing other people into leadership roles in that sense, and that means not pretending that one individual at the top has all of the um, uh, the uh, expertise needed to make decisions. And maybe lastly, I would say specifically in relation to the banking and finance sectors, repeatedly I was told that the regulatory authorities had very little respect from bankers and so on, not necessarily because the uh, of the powers that they had, but because the individuals associated with it in general were seen as young and experienced and amateurish. So I think we need to improve the quality of the people who work in regulatory authorities as well so that they are less intimidated by those that they are regulating and more willing to take action when action is truly indicated as
0: necessary. Yes, yeah, we, we, we see this, uh, a similar thing going on in, in other organisations like TAX. So you know, federal and government tax organisations that are having to um, look at, uh, like, a large organisation's um, taxes where they they get suckered into and intimidated by these organisations. Yeah, I, I completely well, if, you agree. know, if we cast
1: our minds back to uh, Enron which went bankrupt in 2001 in America. And uh, it was the biggest bankruptcy in US corporate history up until Lehman Brothers went belly up in 2008. Uh, the auditing organisations failed completely to properly audit what Enron was up to for some of the same reasons, but also because they had too intimate a business relationship with the organisation that they were, uh, they were auditing. So we need regulators to stand back to be separated, to have proper powers of, of supervision, but also to have the expertise that makes them credible in those kinds of environments. And of course, the resources to actually do the job.
0: Mm. We, a lot of the things that you're talking about we also find in, in high performance teams um, so we find high performance teams aren't in agreement that they're constantly giving each other like critical feedback on a continual basis and you know you, you just yes. look at some of the international rugby teams um, yeah. well, there's I'm this absolutely. constant chatter going on within the team whilst they're playing and yeah. you know and, and it is that proper feedback.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we know for a long time that uh, successful teams and high functioning teams, they're not characterized by the absence of disagreement. They're characterized by its presence Mm. because if people are not openly disagreeing with each other, it just means they're doing it behind each other's back. And I read a fascinating paper a, a while ago by Andy Halden, who is one of the most yeah. senior figures at the Bank of England, where he went out of his way to demonstrate in this paper how the top team at the Bank of England institutionalises critical uh, feedback into his top decision-making processes. They actually go out of the way to look for the problems that are, that are, that are there in uh, decisions. So I often say to teams they should do simple things like before they make a major decision, just stop and say, okay, let's ruthlessly criticise it. Mm -hmm. Let's look at what's wrong with it, not what's good about it. Let's all express reservations. And by the way, I'm the leader, so I'll start and then go around and force everybody to actually express these reservations. Because the truth is that difficult, complex decisions always have a downside. Mm -hmm. I'm not advocating paralysis of decision-making. I am advocating that key decisions should be scrutinised much more thoroughly than it often appears to be the case that they are.
0: Yes. Yeah, and I've, I've seen a couple of teams um, within organisations that have a, a leader of the opposition role within there and that... that. Um, rotates around and their job is to criticize, to critique and to ask for further evidence for things, to say there isn't enough evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can really kind of sharpen things. I've I've seen that in a couple of cases and certainly... um, I mean, the
1: classic example, of course, is the Cuban Missile Crisis, if we can think that far back to when America and Russia teetered on the brink of nuclear war in the early 1960s. The president was under enormous pressure from the American military to invade Cuba. (laughs) They were unaware that nuclear warheads were already in the country. At that time. But one of the things that Kennedy did under enormous pressure was to slow the decision-making process down and appoint his brother Bobby um, as an official devil's advocate. So people going into meetings would often know that the, whatever they said Bobby Kennedy would ruthlessly criticise it. Mm-hmm. The result was that an atmosphere developed where people could share different opinions and it uh, led us out of an all-mighty mess. Faced with much less consequential decisions, I don't see why
0: business organisations cannot do the same. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with it. Absolutely agree with that. Well, this is, well, A, fascinating and um, brilliant. Thank you very much, Dennis. Um, How how can our our members contact you if they want to do so? Um, uh, Where are you?
1: (laughs) Well, the simplest way to contact me would be for anybody to send me an email. And uh, perhaps you can put my email address on the website when you post this conversation. For now, my email address is D, Dot j dot at sussex.ac.uk
0: Yes, we'll put that and and the department link and things uh, within the show notes. And obviously, I'll send you a link as well. It's been a brilliant session. Thank you very much, Dennis. I I really appreciate it. My pleasure.
1: And if anybody wants a copy of the paper that you were talking about on Hubris Mm -hmm. that I wrote, just send me an email
0: and I'll happily forward forward it. That's very generous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics, and a whole lot more, visit Oxford-Review.com. That's Oxford-Review.com. And please, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you.